Welcome to the Powers That Be Puck's daily podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Teddy Schleifer, filling in this week again for Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, March 22, and on today's show, I'm talking with Tina Wynn about what Ron DeSantis is thinking and how the Russian war could spell chaos in the GOP. We'll dig into the front runners for the Republican nomination like DeSantis, and we'll chat about whether or not Russia could be hurting the MAGA wing of the party. We'll hear all about that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ains. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Welcome, everybody, to The Powers That Be. This is a worse-looking Peter Hamby, Teddy Schleifer here on the mic. And we're talking with my colleague in Washington, Tina Nguyen. Hey, Tina. Hey, Teddy. Why are you so hard on yourself? Just because you have a beard doesn't mean that you have to put yourself down so much. We will be sending this to my mother. Um, Tina, we wanted to have you on to talk about the bell of the ball in Republican circles over the last, I don't know, 12 months, maybe six months, maybe three months. I mean, the attention on Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, and seems like the most likely Republican nominee, not named Donald J. Trump, though. I'll ask you about that in a second. DeSantis is all over our culture, our politics. Obviously, he represents, you know, a massive economy that is one of America's most vibrant and also most controversial. And it seems like he's always sort of in the news. And and I honestly, sitting here in San Francisco, I don't really know what his deal is. And we wanted to have you on to tell us about this power that be, about who this guy is, especially at this moment, right, where Trump, you know, it's mid-2022, early 2022. We do not know if he's running for president. Seems to have sort of frozen the field. But if he does not, it seems like Ron DeSantis is as well positioned as anybody. Mm. Do you agree with that premise that DeSantis is the likeliest Republican nominee who is not Trump? I think so. Behind the scenes, he's been putting together a bit of a shadow campaign and staffing up on his campaign to a degree that doesn't seem commensurate for a re-election campaign in a state that he's probably going to win by double digits. If you look at it from afar, you're just kind of like, okay, it seems like you're aiming for something bigger. Why are you staffing up, dude? Uh, But one of the many things that uh, DeSantis has over Trump is that one, he's more coherent. And another one is that he's more in the news cycle because of his culture war fronts. Right. The past couple of weeks, he's been fighting against Disney over the uh, don't say gay bill, aka the parents and schools should not be teaching about LGBTQ existence. 
past the third grade. And then from that point on, I'm not too familiar with the law, but from my understanding of it, it gives parents a means by which to complain against teachers for teaching specific subject matters of which LGBTQ rights is one. And DeSantis, I think, has been really good at utilizing this to wage a front in the culture war against woke corporations, as the terminology goes, particularly since Disney, one of the biggest business presidents in Florida, like you got Disney World, you got Epcot, you got basically the reason that everyone goes to Orlando in the first place. The fact that Disney has been giving political donations to DeSantis and the Republican Party has inadvertently given Ron DeSantis a brand new tool in the culture war belt. Because like one of the big things of the culture war is that big corporations are now taking the side of more liberal progressive positioning. So Mm. the fact that it's being framed in terms of Florida business, Florida money, opposing a Florida governor is just perfect for whatever you read on the Daily Wire or Fox News. Big bad corporation versus the governor of a state that really appreciates and likes what he's doing in terms of any other culture war thing. And to put this like in sort of a a Trumpian context here, I wonder what Trump, who for all his inconsistencies has been kind of remarkably consistent over the years on, on gay issues, which is that he's never really cared. I wonder if Trump was governor of Florida what would he be doing right now? Hmm. It seems like DeSantis is taking kind of a harder line on social issues than than Trump has been to date. And I guess I'm just thinking aloud here about whether or not DeSantis is a more hardline version of Trump or a less hardline version of Trump. When you say hardline, I wouldn't use that word. I would say DeSantis is more consistent in putting that pressure on the culture war front. Trump would probably be like, oh, look at Disney. They're doing such bad things. It's so terrible. And, you know, make a couple of big speeches about it, but then legislatively do nothing at all. Mm. Just give the base that sort of meat to chew on and then not really act about it, but just, you know, holler about it for a long time. DeSantis is actually putting that sentiment into action. And I think that a lot of people who aren't necessarily Trumpy to begin with, but do have a kind of conservative impetus, impulse, whatever, they identify with that and they appreciate that someone is fighting on their behalf against Disney. I don't really know if you could see a world where Donald Trump knows what the hell he's talking about or any way to actually enforce or create or even care about the law in general. I mean, you saw it a lot during the Trump administration. You'd have one group of crazy hardliners pushing one thing. Trump obviously would back it and then like there'd be a certain amount of backlash and they'd just like walk back on it immediately. Okay, right now we're sitting here in March, 2022. Trump, I'm sure, is not going to make any news this year about whether or not he's running. Do you think there's any possibility that there is a serious Republican challenger to Trump if he runs? And I would include, and I assume you would too, DeSantis as a serious challenger, but I would not include, you know, John Kasich uh, <laughs> as a serious challenger. Like, I mean, I mean, like, just give me, give me a sense here of the politics right now in conservative circles. Is this as much of a cakewalk? for Trump if he runs as kind of the conventional narrative seems to hold? I don't think so. I really don't think it will be a cakewalk for Trump at all. It really depends on his performance in the midterms. I mean, not his performance, but the proxy wars that he's fighting within the Republican Party. Right. It's a window into does Trump still have the command of 
at least the foot soldiers in Republican politics. Exactly. So one of the big races I'm paying attention to is the Georgia governor's race between David Perdue, who's the former governor uh, who got unseated by Ossoff, and Brian Kemp, who's the current sitting Republican governor who earned Trump's enmity by saying, no, my election was conducted fairly. It's fine. There was no ballots stolen. Everything was good. Stop complaining, to paraphrase. And Trump immediately flipped on him, has been trying to back a MAGA challenger to him. And the funny thing is, is that David Perdue, who's the guy he threw his weight behind, is not polling well. I think the last poll I saw was 11 points behind Brian Kemp. So if he loses a high profile race like this one in a state that was traditionally kind of Republican to begin with, if those Republican primary voters are happy to back Kemp again, then that's real trouble for Donald Trump. It proves that the stolen election narrative is not something that Republican voters want. There's this great report in the Daily Beast recently about how he's been starting to worry about certain races with candidates that he's backed, starting to flounder. In one case, he's so obsessed with appearing like he's a winner that he's just going to back all of the candidates in that race, which- Well, he can't lose. I mean, you gotta admit, that is very genius behavior, right? It's so smart. It's big brain. Is there is there anybody else in, we talked about the Sanders, we've talked about Trump, you know, I'm a former Ted Cruz 2016 embed. You know, clearly he's got the same ambition he's had uh, since he was on the Princeton debate team in 1990. I would expect him to run. Um, if Trump does not run, like, give me give me the architecture of who else is out there. Well, DeSantis, obviously, like the infrastructure's there, the money's there. Mike Pence is making such a decisive move away. Who is that? I forgot about that guy. Oh, yeah, him. Uh, Obviously, Trump completely dislikes him. He's made a number of statements saying that he would not choose Pence as his running mate if he were to run again. But Pence has also been sprinting as far away from Trump as possible and embedding himself in the more traditional conservative world. Yeah. Federalist Society, one of the biggest, most powerful interest groups on the right. He gave a speech in front of them saying Trump had no right to overturn the election. In a recent speech to GOP donors, he said that there was no place for anyone who endorsed Putin in the party. It was one of those things where he didn't mention Trump, but you kind of knew what he was saying. And uh, just from what I've been hearing, he wants to make sure that he is in the public spotlight, but in a way that is absolutely a break with Trump. And a lot of the January 6th investigation, the documents that have turned up in it, have proven that to be the case. So I think he has a strong chance of pivoting and becoming the I'm not Trump candidate, the type of candidate that like Bill Barr would like to have as. <laughs> as so, so, yeah. you see, so you see Pence, DeSantis, Cruz. Kind of Cruz. Um, give me, give me, give me one more. I would put Tim Scott and Tom Cotton as like second or third tier Pompeo. Larry sure. Hogan, I think, has been making appearances in Iowa. I mean, right I don't now, even know, I don't even know. If, I don't even know if Larry Hogan's that different than John Kasich at this point. Maybe that's a uh, serious ish, but yeah, I mean, the, right now, tier six. Everyone else is sort of doing that thing where they're suddenly appearing in Iowa for various reasons, testing the waters. In terms of serious candidates, I would say those three. I really don't know who else would try to break in there. But the fact that you see a lot of Republicans take stances that are highly antithetical to what Trump's wanted, I think is a pretty big sign. All right, we'll talk more with Tina after a quick break. 
This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. We're back here with Tina Nguyen talking about Republican politics in the age of post-Trump, but but sort of in the age of Putin. And I want to spend a few minutes just kind of getting into that. Tina, you've been writing about the unusual politics of the Republican Party when it comes to the conflict in Russia. You know, this is a Republican Party that, you know, used to be sort of classically hawkish and neoconservative, sort of a Marco Rubio style. Republican foreign policy. Then Trump was elected. Everything got thrown into disarray. And the party now has kind of much more scattershot politics when it comes to Vladimir Putin. Talk me through kind of how MAGA world is thinking about the war in Ukraine and how is what's happening right now going to affect 2024 scrambling? Not that's the most important thing, but it is a thing, and and you know these these wars can challenge the consensus any party develops. So talk me to me about how Putin is affecting twenty twenty four. One of the things that you have to understand about the MAGA movement, I'm not saying the conservative movement overall. I'm talking about the populist nationalist thing that you could just like slap a red hat on and call MAGA. They've always been isolationist, like withdraw troops from Iraq and Afghanistan try to lessen their involvement in NATO, stop doing military operations abroad. And they also don't like losers. And that's sort of why Trump seemed okay and had a closer relationship with Putin than the rest of the Republican Party possibly wanted at the time. But I truly believe, and this might be a little controversial, I truly believe that if Putin had been more successful in Ukraine, Trump Mm. would have loved that. Trump would have been like, this guy is really dealing from strength. He is totally committing. He has the right to this land, yada, yada, yada. The fact that Putin is having his ass kicked on the ground by this small country with a military defense budget that's the size of the NYPD. The Republican Party overwhelmingly is pro-Ukraine in this. They draw the line at putting American boots on the ground. But uh, there's this poll from Pew recently that said like high 70s, low 80% of Republicans want to increase aid to Ukraine. Do not mind putting American troops on the border in NATO countries. So you think it's more, it's maybe the Republican Party base is more neoconservative and less sort of friendly to Trump's America first ideology than maybe Trump would think. I would definitely say so. Like, you have to understand one of the reasons that MAGA base is so anti-war and isolationist was because of a sentiment that a lot of Americans, frankly, shared at the time. Why did we have to go into Iraq? That freaking sucked. We (laughs) lost a lot of lives and spent way too much money on a cause that was not really based in anything factual or correct. Afghanistan sort of turned into this endless quagmire that collapsed the moment that Biden left. Those wars kind of embedded themselves in the American conscious as pointless 
and unnecessary and a massive loss of life. When you look at Ukraine, on the other hand, it's as a people who are fighting for their nation and their sovereignty. And I mean, I've known a lot of people who've gone over to Ukraine and the consensus is this is a war that is worth fighting for. The cause of war is just. Therefore, we should help these guys fight the big bad Vladimir Putin, who is clearly the bad guy here. And that's a sentiment that I think Republicans overwhelmingly agree with. The MAGA base, I think, initially was highly skeptical of whether Ukraine was actually going to win this thing. And you could see it in the fact that they didn't really have talking points ready to say, oh, this is Ukraine's fault. They're supposed to lose, blah, 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 blah. And you're seeing like Marjorie Taylor Greene and a very rabid grassroots quasi-conspiratorial part of the base right now starting to leap onto these narratives that come straight out of QAnon world. I am not kidding. Mm. Saying that, oh, wait, there were biolabs in Ukraine that have, uh, you know, diseases in them. And of course, Putin had to go in to stop that. Here are some neo-Nazis in the Azov Battalion Like, obviously, none of this justifies Putin's invasion and the scale of his invasion. They are trying to grab something to make their support of Putin somewhat more okay. I don't know how much that's going to trickle up into the mainstream Republican Party, but I think that's going to be a hard sell, especially since all of these figures that are making these claims end up on Kremlin-sponsored television with Russian dubbing underneath them and some Uh (laughs) anchor going, yes, Americans agree with us. Look at Tucker Carlson. You know, I I was saying, has orthodoxy changed? Like, orthodoxy may just be dead. There's no longer any orthodoxy. Um, And in some ways, you know, there are liberals who like Putin, conservatives who like Putin. Anyway, Tina, thank you so much for explaining this all to us and for coming on the pod. Oh boy, I have so much to talk about, but I hope we got a good start here. Thanks again. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck Now Daily. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for all their editorial and production help. If you like what you hear, please share us with a friend. It really helps us deliver all the goods we have here at Puck. You can visit us at puck.news and on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Teddy Schleifer. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 